0: In the name of the Father, the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. At the very onset of this, I think, familiar gospel uh, this morning, uh, Jesus identifies something that I think is exceedingly appealing. (laughs) He talks to his disciples about this reality called an untroubled heart, an untroubled heart. As I, as I thought about that reality this week, I found myself thinking, well, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? At the very center of your being, to be that unconflicted. To have a sense of peace and joy that pervades your whole being. I like something that I, I read about an untroubled heart this week. Um, It said that an untroubled heart would be able to look at all three dimensions of time, befriending all of them. In other words, you would be able to look at the past um, with a sense of thanksgiving and gratitude. You would be able to look at the present with a sense of awareness and vividness. And you would be able to look into the future with a sense of confidence and hope. Or to paraphrase an old saying, the untroubled heart could say, all was well, all is well, and all will be well, befriending past, present, and future, all of these. But I would have to say that in all honesty, this is not only an exceedingly um, appealing idea, it is also exceedingly rare looking back over your life how many people would you describe in this way looking back over your own days and nights how often would you describe that as the condition of your heart when I think of this metaphor of an untroubled heart I am reminded of something that Frederick Beekner, the Presbyterian minister who we are studying uh, in our adult studies on Wednesday, we're reading his little book, um, something that Beekner wrote about his own father. Uh, Beekner's father was born into a very prosperous and achieving New York family. His forebearers had come over here as immigrants from, um, from Germany. They were free-thinking folks, they were hard-working, and so the new world Offered for them a wonderful opportunity, and they took advantage of that. And young Beekner was sort of the extension of that family legacy. He excelled in high school, in college. In fact, when he graduated from Princeton, he was voted by his peers not only the most popular, but also the most likely to succeed. A few years after graduating, He married the daughter of a very prominent industrialist. I think it was from Cleveland. And uh, they had two sons who joined their circle of love. But then something happened that changed everything for Beekner's father. We call it the Great Depression. It turned the whole world upside down economically. And as a result, Beekner's father had trouble finding and keeping the kind of job that would enable him to support his family in the way he really wanted to. And so he made at that juncture a very common but a fatal mistake. He took personally what was, in fact, a sociological and historical phenomenon. That is, instead of saying, these are bad times financially, he began to say, I am bad. There is something wrong with me. He was by no means the only one of his contemporaries having trouble finding a job, but he chose to internalize this and to personalize it. And to make matters worse, he began to drink heavily, to deal with those feelings. And, of course, that only increased uh, the, the, the speed with which his life continued to go downward. And so one Saturday morning in October, the family was actually getting ready to go to homecoming at Princeton. Everyone was excited. The two sons couldn't wait to go to a football game. Uh, Beekner's father's mother had come to join them for that expedition. But evidently, the prospect of getting back with all of these people who had voted him the most likely to succeed... And at the same time, acknowledging the way it was was simply too much for Beekner's ego. And so that Saturday morning, before anybody was out of their bedroom, he went down and closed the garage door tightly. He turned on the ignition of their old Chevrolet. He sat down on the running board. And before anybody knew what was happening, he had taken his own life. That event left a lasting scar on their whole family. Years later, Frederick Beekner says, when folks asked him about his dad, he would say he died early on. If they pressed him, he would say that he died of heart trouble. And he said that was partially true because he had a heart and it was troubled. And I believe that that description is true of some of us all the time, and probably true of all of us some of the time. That's why I say that the untroubled heart is exceedingly rare, not just terribly appealing. Is there any one of us that wouldn't love to live in this kind of befriending of the past, the present, and the future? And it simply cannot be that this is a mission impossible? Or why would Jesus have spoken about it so positively in our gospel lesson this morning? I don't think Jesus came into the world to taunt us by sort of dangling some unattainable goal in front of our nose, something that is beyond our reach. This one who said, let not your hearts be troubled, he must have believed This is something that can really happen. And so the question for us this morning is, how? How do we live more and more into this reality of an untroubled heart? Well, if you look deeper into our gospel lesson this morning, there are a wealth of images that Jesus um, gives us. He says he is going to prepare a place for us in God's house of many rooms. I'm not going to abandon you, he says. I will come again so that where I am, you may be also. And it all centers on this profoundly simple invitation. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, I take it that all of these images are trying to say one thing to us, and that is that you and I, we are not alone in this world. They all point to the one big question of faith. Are we or are we not alone in this universe? Is it really just us? Are we alone at this very moment in this room? Or is there something, is there someone whose power and strength we can also access? Lo, I am with you always, always. And it's when we believe that seminal fact, when we begin to live our lives not as a solo, but a duet, that we find our way to the untroubled heart. I think we also need to realize that that word believe in John's gospel is always something more than just an intellectual assent to an idea. It is much more akin to our word trust or entrusting or, in the words of the old hymn, leaning on the everlasting arms. I remember reading about a missionary years ago. He was part of the Wycliffe. Society. The Wycliffe Society is dedicated to translating the gospel into all the languages of the world, named after John Wycliffe, the 14th century reformer, uh, who was an incredible translator himself. And this particular missionary was sent to a tribe that was in the interior of Africa who had never had the gospel translated into their language. And he was trying at that point to translate the Gospel of John, but he was having trouble finding a word that would capture this word believe, all of the implications of that in John's Gospel. And literally the afternoon he was trying to do this, one of the natives came in and plopped down in the seat right next to his desk and said in a native word, um, I put my whole weight down on this piece of furniture. And no sooner had he said that than the translator said, of course, that's exactly what John is trying to say. To believe is to put your whole weight trustingly. Or in the uh, words of that ancient hymn, Hokey Pokey, you've got to put your whole self in, not just one foot and then the other, as many of us try to pretend. And it's when we forget that fact that our hearts become full of anxiety." So Frederick Beekner, decades after his father's suicide, faced a crisis in his own life, though different in the details, um, it's not about a father not finding work, it was still overwhelming to him. His oldest daughter developed anorexia, this mysterious disease where a person um, literally starves themselves to death. I mean, who knows to this day, really, all the mystery behind that disease. Is it the result of over-controlling parents, the attempt of this person to say, here is something that you will not control? Is it an attempt to sort of turn back the, uh, the developmental cycle and become more like a child so that people will have to continue to take care of you? Is it just the result of a society who is always saying to us, you can never be too rich and you can never be too thin, no matter what the physical or emotional toll it takes on you? Whatever it may be, Beekner watched as in terrible anguish his beloved daughter literally starved herself to death. And his great anguish was that he was powerless. He simply didn't know what he could do. He said, one afternoon, he was going down the driveway to the mailbox. The the Buechners live in rural Vermont. He said his heart was so heavy for his daughter, he thought it was going to break. And as he was going to the mailbox, it just happened that a car was driving by. And on the front bumper of that license plate were five letters, T R. U-S-T. He said of all the words that could have possibly been there, those were the ones he most needed to hear. And that word, trust, brought him back to the idea that he was not alone, that his daughter was not alone. He said he remembered the title of a book he had read years before, before called Every Child Has Two Fathers, the human parents, and, of course, the heavenly energy. And he said it snapped him out of his depression and brought him back to himself. Interestingly enough, just a few weeks later, um, Buechner was guest preaching at a church that was not far from him, and he relayed that story uh, about going out to get the mail. And a few days later, there was a knock at his door at home. And there stood the man who had been driving that car. He was in the congregation that day. Turns out he was a trust officer at a local bank. And this was just his way of peddling his trade. But he gave Beekner that little piece of metal with the five letters on it. And Beekner says it still has a prominent place in his library. Those five letters reminded him of the secret of an untroubled heart. Now, what that license plate did for Frederick Buechner, another experience did for Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. You will remember that in the middle of the 16th century, um, he discovered this life-changing truth that we sing about so often that we are saved by grace through faith and not by something that we do, like our first video talked about and it led him to challenge, to challenge the whole ethos of the medieval Catholic Church. He nailed his 99 theses to that door. He went to the Diet of Worms and he said, here I stand, I can do no other. It was the beginning of an incredible revolution in Germany and throughout Europe, not just religiously, but politically. Controversy began to swell on all sides And years later, Luther became so distraught at what he had begun. It seemed like the whole fabric of society was literally coming apart. He became noticeably anxious and depressed. He had left the monastery years before that and married a wonderful lady named Catherine, Katie, um, who was in many ways as spiritually insightful as he was. And she saw what was happening to him and she decided to do something about him. And so one night Luther came home, not a light on in the house save for one single candle that was burning in the living room. He went in and there sat Katie dressed all in black as though she was mourning the death of someone dear to her her head in her hands, grieving some great loss. And Luther said, what on earth has happened? Who has died? And Katie said, I take it your God has died. You're so distraught. You're acting like you're all by yourself. I assume the one about whom you wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, I assume this is no longer true. Because you're living in the world as though you were a functional atheist. And that insightful act did for Luther exactly what that license plate did for Beekner. His promise, lo, I am with you always, is as true today under whatever circumstances you find yourself in. Which brings me back to where I started. When we forget that seminal fact that our it is when we forget that seminal fact that our hearts become troubled. If we have nothing but ourselves to rely on, then yes, when we look at the challenges that we face in life, we will become anxious and afraid. But if we remember his promise, with you always, if we will put our whole weight down on the fact that we are not alone, than what that license plate did for Biechner, what that insightful act by Katie did for Luther. That can happen to us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. Come to this table today and claim the promise. For you, I am with you always. Amen.